to listen on as I read Romans chapter 8, verse 15, though, uh, for the sake of context, verses 14 through 17. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, with a focus upon verse 15. Hear the word of God. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness, witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together and again verse 15 is the focus for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out abba father let us pray together our gracious father in heaven we thank you again for your word we thank you for this text we acknowledge to you that it contains to us uh, in one sense uh, the most basic truth of our christianity and yet at the same time one of the highest mysteries a man can ever learn And we ask you that by your spirit, indeed, as he has spoken of in this text, we might learn more of our sonship and his ministry in that regard. And so we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, we continue to look at the role of the spirit in our assurance, seeing chapter eight as particularly dealing with the subject of assurance. Uh, Chapter five, verse one, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Uh, really beginning in chapter 5 all the way through chapter 8, that, that's the subject, that's the focus. What is true of the one who has been justified by faith? Well, chapter 8, there's no condemnation for him. Uh, there's no condemnation for him because he's in Christ. And so Paul in chapter 8 is explaining uh, what is involved in our being in Christ, uh, which carries with it the certainty That there is and that there can be now no condemnation for us. Why? Because we're in Christ. Yes. Well, how do we know that we're in Christ? That's the question. And that's the question that he's answering. So that we might be sure, that we might know with certainty that we are in Christ. And thus, that there is for us no, now no condemnation. And especially here in verses 14 through 17, uh, someone said to me after the sermon last week, uh, or maybe it was the week before, I don't remember, that this really is the cream, verses 14 through 17. And and I think I would agree with that. Of course, as we go on with chapter 8, I think I would say the same thing. And that's just how it tends to go. Uh, We just go with Paul from from one pinnacle to the next. We're we're, we're going along with him uh, until... Well, we reach the end of chapter 11 and and we praise the Lord and uh, begin to consider our duties in chapter in chapter 12. The role of the spirit in our assurance as sons. That's the emphasis of these verses as sons. This now the third sermon on these on these four verses. Now, I I would tell you, I when I had begun, I had planned to preach two sermons. And here we're on uh, the third sermon and we're only in the second of the four verses. Well, here we are. Uh, But. Uh, something that occurred to me in, in preaching the sermon last week was that uh, I was presenting so- things in such a way that they were open to misunderstanding. Uh, and there was, there was uh, some discussion that occurred as a result of it, and, and, and uh, not in a negative way at all, in a very helpful way. And, and I realized that there really was more to say, and I wanted to say more about this verse, especially with regard to the spirits enabling us to cry out, Abba, Father. Now, last time I stressed these three things just by way of review. Uh, 
First, the spirit of adoption is contrary to the spirit of bondage. You have not been given the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have been given the spirit of adoption by which you cry out, Abba, Father. So it's set in contrast. The spirit is not the spirit of bondage. He doesn't produce feelings of fear in our hearts, but he stirs up and produces feelings of love by which uh, love to God, by which we cry out to him as our father. That's the first point. Uh, The second point is that the spirit is the one in doing this who makes us conscious of our sonship. And then the third had to do with the cry in particular. The cry, Abba, Father. You receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And I presented that as a distinct manifestation of the spirit of adoption. And as something which is unusual and exceptional. Times and seasons when the believer is moved by the spirit to express his sonship in a special way. Now, I want to stand by that thought. But I also realized that this is the point that was open to misunderstanding and confusion and even uh, on the part of the people, some helpful follow up. Uh, I want you to follow up with me. I want you, as the Puritans would say, to improve the sermon and come to me with, well, with your thoughts and, and even at times your misunderstanding. There were things that I didn't say. And in not saying them, uh, this is where I open myself to misunderstanding. And so I want to do justice to the thought and to fill out the picture And therefore, to say more in the sermon with respect to the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, the first thing I would want to do here, uh, which I failed to do last time, and I think this is a helpful place to begin, is the general framework. We're talking about the spirit whom you have received. The Christian is someone who's been given the spirit. We're, We're seeing that at Pentecost. We're not looking for the baptism of the Spirit. I, I, I tried to make that as clear as I could last time. We've received the baptism of the Spirit. We've been baptized with the Spirit. You've received the Spirit. That's what a Christian is. And that's where we have to begin. So I would begin a, a general framework uh, under three subheadings. The first being the general ministry of the Spirit unto all believers is this. It is to enable them to express a childlike confidence in prayer, addressing God as our father who is in heaven. We just did that in the Lord's Prayer, didn't we? How did we come to do it if we did so with any amount of feeling and faith? Well, we did so by the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption. He's the one who enabled you to do it, to express your your, your childlike confidence and faith in this way. It's the spirit who enables us. It is the spirit who, who is given to the church as a matter of promise to all believers. And so this is from the standpoint of the spirit and the outpouring of the spirit at Pentecost and the abiding of the spirit ever since. This has to do with the office of the spirit who was given unto all believers at Pentecost. And this has to do with why he was given. He was given to the church to be a spirit of adoption to us, to enable us to cry out to God as our father. That's the general ministry of the spirit. But then I would add to that. That there are seasons, as a second point, where this is known and experienced more or less constantly. Seasons of blessed prayer in which the believer is enabled to express his sonship almost constantly. Constantly he finds he's crying out to God as his father, as he's animated and indeed inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Such as we find, for instance, in the New Testament and such uh, such as we may have known ourselves. Seasons of blessed prayer by the Spirit. Likewise, there may be seasons in which the opposite is true, where believers or churches are generally devoid of this spirit of prayer that Paul is expressing here. 
But then as a third point in terms of the general framework, and this is what I discussed last time, although maybe I was too quick to rush to this point, that there are also times in which this particular kind of prayer comes in a special way, even beyond what I described in the prior point. Times when we are enabled to cry out to God as sons with such feeling that it amazes us. And such times are generally, if not invariably, accompanied with this other element as well, namely the witness of the spirit with our spirits. Verse verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. Let me give an example. Spurgeon uh, preached a sermon on uh, this very theme, expressing our sonship to God in prayer. And this is what he says. And I would say this falls under the third category. He says, I can testify to this. I have spoken to him in that particular manner. We have had a, we have had access to him in such a way that we cannot have been deceived about it. The thing really happened in this tremendous fashion. We are able, he says, to address God as Abba Father. And we have had a, we have had access to him in a way that we. Uh, that we cannot be deceived. I I suppose he says that twice. I thought I was repeating myself, but in the quote, he says that twice. We've had access to him in a way that we cannot be deceived. That is the cry of verse 15. He's expressing that Uh, a time in which the believer in an unmistakable way was enabled by the spirit to cry out to God, to lay hold of God as his father. Something tremendous, he says. But then he adds, nor has the speaking been all on our side. For he has been pleased to shed abroad by his spirit, his love in our hearts. While we have felt the spirit of adoption, he, on the other hand, has shown to us the loving kindness of a tender father. We have felt that his spirit did bear witness with our spirit that we were born of God. This is what I'm uh, trying to describe. Under this third heading, what Spurgeon is describing here is something like a distinct mountaintop experience in the presence of God. Whereby we are enabled to cry out to him of a father, whereby we also find him speaking to us, as Spurgeon says, the speaking wasn't all on our side. God was also speaking to us. The spirit was witnessing to us. Joining in our witness that we were indeed the sons of God. And when the witness accompanies the cry, when verse 15 goes along with verse 16, I'm saying that is something additional to the ordinary workings of familiar feelings common to all believers in prayer. And the experience I'm describing will become clearer, I hope, when we come to the witness of the Spirit in verse 16. But let me say this as well, and this is part of the difficulty. What I am describing is an experience of grace. I'm not talking about something that you work out in your mind. Uh, This is something even beyond, I dare say, what he says at the end of the chapter, chapter 8, when he says, I'm persuaded that nothing could separate me from the love of God. Even then, you see, he's, he's reasoning out it out in his mind. Or verse 14, uh, under the same heading, it's a deduction that we draw. Those who are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. Well, am I being led, to the, led by the Spirit? Yes, I am. Therefore, I conclude about myself, I am, I'm a child of God. That's something that you work out in your mind. It's something you're persuaded about. But this is something in addition to that. 
This is something that is given. This is something that is received. Something that comes to you as a result of the Spirit of God coming to you with power. I'm saying this. Here is a man who's praying to God as a result of receiving the spirit of adoption. And he's actually crying out to God like this. Abba, Father. He's a son and he knows it. He addresses God, the only God, the great God, as his father. It astonishes him and yet he does it. Where did he get such confidence? Where did he get this familiar feeling? I keep calling it with God in prayer. Well, Paul says he received it from the Holy Spirit. He received it from above. He received the spirit of adoption. But here's the point I want to stress. That describing Christian experience is always difficult. It always will be. Anytime uh, that's what I'm doing from the pulpit or anytime that's what you're doing with other Christians. Well, you'll run into this difficulty that I'm about to describe. Although, let me describe a harder difficulty, which I would say is a difficulty we ought to try to avoid, and that is prescribing experience. As though any one experience could match all the varieties of the Christian experience. No, I'm saying that is wrong. But what I would say is that this will always be difficult. So I will stand here and describe the experience that Paul is describing, or at least I'll try to describe it, what it is like to be so taken up with the spirit of adoption that we're crying out to God as sons, and, and, and I will say, well, that's that's how the spirit comes to us. And that's what we're doing as a result of it. Uh, have you known anything about that? Have you ever been led thus to cry to God in that particular way? But one thing that you will always find is that what I am saying will not match your own exact experience. And so you may come to me, as some of you have, and say, you know what you're saying doesn't exactly match what I've known. I know what you're describing, but my experience differs uh, in some form or some measure. Well, that's what I'm saying is inevitable. That's, that's not only the difficulty of describing experience, that is what is inevitable whenever such a thing is done. Now, there, there are those who just avoid it altogether because of that. Well, I don't think that's right. Certainly it isn't right when we're working through Scripture and we find the apostle describing an experience of the believer. But there will always be variations in this. Variations in experience, variations in intensity, differing times and circumstances. Oh, the spirit blows where it wills, Jesus says. The point here is not to confine or to prescribe this, the experience after uh, an exact manner, but to admit this is an experience. That's what we're talking about in verse 15. That's what we will talk about in verse 16. An experience of grace, I keep calling it. Times in which the believer is moved in prayer to express his sonship by the Spirit. Now this may look different, very different, in different people. Indeed, it's bound to. It may even vary in one's own life. But the point is, the man who is led by the Spirit, verse 14, is one who will, by the Spirit, be enabled by the same Spirit to express his sonship to God in a way that resembles what is described here. And so let us look together at the cry as a third point. Here is the amazing thing Paul is saying. The amazing thing is this. God is our father and we are his children. All who are led by the spirit. These are the sons of God. 
It's tremendous even to think of it or to utter it. To conceive of oneself as a child of God. And yet that's what a Christian is. He isn't just one who's been justified by faith and by grace. He's actually one who's been made a child of God. And that is now how God regards him. And that's how the Christian is to regard himself. But what Paul is saying in addition to that in verse 15 You see, in verse 14, he's saying, that's what's true of you. In verse 15, he's saying, because that's true of you, because you've been made a child of God and because you've received the spirit of adoption, such a thing must come to express itself. You see, it's one thing to be told you're a son. And I'm telling you, if you're a Christian, you're a son. But it's another thing for you to begin to act like it yourself, for your sonship Uh, if you will, to get a hold of your own heart so that you begin to relate to God as a child of God, so that you are enabled in believing prayer by the Spirit to address Him as our Father, not just to say the words, but to express them in faith, to know it's true. Such a thing we recognize as unnatural and foreign to us. More natural to the flesh is to be afraid of God. To shrink back in fear. To run away from him. That's what the unbeliever does. But it is unnatural. It goes against the grain. For a son of Adam to think of God like a father. To go to him as sons. No rather we are inclined like Adam to shrink back in shame. To hide ourselves from him. To be terrified and afraid. That's why Paul says in receiving the spirit. We haven't received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Because well that's how we were living. That's how we were living before we became sons. And yet here is the ministry of the spirit to believers. It's broader than this, but certainly we must include this in the discussion. It is the spirit who enables and who inspires us to act like sons. In other words, it is he who dispels the fear. It's he who takes away the dread of God. It's he who inspires a childlike confidence in prayer before the father. Where did we get it? Well, we didn't get it from the flesh. It never occurred to us until the spirit came to us and enabled us to do it. He gives us the disposition and the mind of sons. And so he makes us act as sons. You see, that's how he's leading us. You ask the question, well, how is the spirit leading us? What is he telling us to do? And where is he leading us? Well, he's leading us like this, Paul says. He's leading us on as sons into the presence of the father in prayer. That's the ministry of the spirit. That's how he leads us. Or look at it like this. As the spirit of all grace and as the author of every grace in the believer, he is the one who authors and excites and enlivens those graces, graces which are conducive to such a spirit of prayer, such as love to God, a childlike confidence and a yearning and delight in God himself as father. It is the spirit who authors, enlivens and excites such Feeling such graces in the believer, such that when the believer finds that he is stirred up in this way to express such childlike confidence in prayer, he may know it was the spirit who led him in this way. The spirit of adoption by whom we are enabled to cry out, Abba, Father. Let me read to you what John Owen has to say about this. He's talking about Galatians 4, 6, but it's the same thought. Talking about the ministry of the spirit in believers, he says, 
he enables them to behave themselves suitably unto that state and condition whereunto they were taken upon their faith in Christ Jesus. They are made children of God by adoption, and it is meet that they be taught to carry themselves as become becomes that new relation. You see, again, he's saying what I'm saying, or I'm saying what he's saying. You've become children of God, but that isn't enough. You need to be enabled to act as a child. And that's what the Spirit is enabling you to do. How so? He teaches them to, be, to bear and behave themselves no longer as foreigners and strangers, nor as servants only, but as children and heirs of God. He endows them with a frame and disposition of heart unto holy, filial obedience. For as he takes away the distance, making them to be nigh who were aliens and far from God. So he removes the fear, dread and bondage, which they are kept in who are under the power of the law. And finally, he speaks of him as a spirit of power. For without the spirit of adoption, we have not the least strength or power to behave ourselves as sons in the family of God. And he is also and thus bestowed a spirit of love who works in us that love unto God and that delight in him, which becomes children towards their heavenly father. He stirs up the graces of love, of childlike confidence and delight in God as our father. But what about the words themselves and the particular form in which they're given given? One of the things that is striking to us, surely, is that in Galatians four and Romans chapter eight. Paul uses the same expression expression by whom we're enabled to cry, Abba, Father. Well, what about those two words together? Well, let me say this. On the one hand, I don't want to attach too much significance to them. As though the only possible way to experience uh, this experience is to be enabled to cry out those two particular words. Perhaps I stated that a little too strongly last time. But I don't want to attach too little either to the words themselves. It is enough for us to recognize that by the Spirit we are enabled to address God in this familiar way. As our Father, even as Abba Father. You see, and here's the real point Paul is making when you take the statement as a whole. We haven't been given the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we have been given the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. He's saying a slave can't do that. A slave can't speak to a man in that way. He's too afraid. But if you were to make that slave a son, if you were to adopt that slave into your family, and then you went to the trouble to impress Upon his heart, this new reality that he was indeed now regarded by you as a son. Well, then he would begin to find it natural to address you in this way. Not as a slave, but now as a son. Not, in one, not, not one in a bondage again to fear, but one uh, who is confident and familiar as a son. But I would also stress here, as I did last time, that as a cry, you notice he says, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And that word indeed is something which is very earnest. It's a, it's a powerful kind of thing. It isn't something that you're always doing. The Christian is someone who might always address our Father in this familiar way. We might always say our Father who art in heaven. I'm not disputing that. But there really is something to the idea that the cry is something special. I almost don't know how to express it except to say, 
there is a power and an intensity to what Paul is describing here. We find a parallel to this uh, in our Lord's life. Mark chapter 14, verse 36. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Now, what I'm suggesting is that this was something, even in the life of our Lord, that was exceptional and unusual. Crying out to God in, in the, the moment of extremity. And the way in which he addressed him was as Abba Father. So there was, there is something of a similarity between what Paul is describing here and what Jesus experienced in the flesh. In the hour of his trial. So likewise, the believer who is led by the spirit to cry out like this. It is a very moving and intense experience. It is to be overwhelmed by a sense of our sonship and of love to God such that we cannot contain it. We are moved and led by the spirit to cry out to God like this. There is a sudden surprising nature to it. That's what Spurgeon was saying. He was saying, I can testify to it. How did he put it? He said, I've spoken to him in that particular manner. We have had access to him in such a way that we cannot have uh, we cannot have been deceived about it. The thing really happened in this tremendous fashion. We were thus led by the spirit into the presence of the father. Spurgeon says, I can testify to it. Well, I say, along with Spurgeon, that I can testify to it. I've known something of what Spurgeon is describing and Paul is describing. I would not make my experience the litmus test of Christianity. But I do say I have known the spirit of adoption in just the way that Paul expresses here. I've been made to cry out to God like this. And I'm only saying what Spurgeon was saying himself. I can testify to it. I have been made to speak to him in this particular tremendous fashion. I'll leave that point there for a moment. Let me add uh, a few subsidiary points. One is. Familiarity and fear. Paul is contrasting them. He's contrasting the disposition of the believer with that of the unbeliever. He's saying we're no longer afraid of God. By the spirit, we have the confidence to draw near as sons and to express our confidence in believing prayer. Uh, this is how Edwards puts it. He says, fear is cast out by the spirit of God. In no other way than by the prevailing of love. Fear is cast out. Love is uh, love takes over. We could say we're no longer afraid. We have the confidence to draw near. We have the confidence to express our sonship in believing prayer, not of ourselves, but being thus moved by the spirit. Our prayers are animated by his work in us. Uh, you know that John also says something similar. First John chapter four. Verse 18, he says. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. John is contrasting these in just the way that Paul is contrasting them. Fear involves torment. Well, that isn't the kind of fear the Christian has. The Christian is animated by love. These things are contrasted as opposites, therefore. One man is afraid of God. The other man loves him. And which of the two do you think will go to him in prayer? 
But what are the passages that tell us to fear God? Now, that's a question. That's another question some of you had last time. And this is this also belongs in the category of having more to say. Well, you have passages like uh, Solomon telling us in Proverbs that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And indeed, you read the whole of that book and continually you see that. You also find Hebrews with his continual emphasis on drawing near to God, nevertheless telling us to approach him in a spirit of reverence and godly fear. And so, well, that's interesting, isn't it, to notice this contrast. On the one hand, we're told not to fear God. On the other, we're told to fear him. And indeed, the fear of God is the sum of all religion in our approach to God. Well, I would suggest that is something different. The fear that's spoken of in Proverbs or in Hebrews. There's a kind of fear which is afraid of God, which is terrified of him. The fear which John says involves torment and anguish. The dread of God, the dread of his being, his majesty, the man who's afraid to go to him. That's the kind of fear which we're told as believers we have now nothing to do. But there's also a kind of fear which we are told about in scripture which involves reverencing his majesty. Adoring him for his holiness. Indeed, loving him for his holiness, but fearing him at the same time. Such that we could say we're familiar, but not too familiar. There's a limit. Now, one kind of fear is incompatible with sonship. The kind which involves torment. But the other is not. Though even then, here is a mystery that only faith can comprehend. How God is to be loved and feared at the same time. You see, just to say it is a kind of mystery, but faith comprehends it. And it it not only comprehends it, but it expresses it in believing prayer. I'll give you an example. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, Our Father, who art in heaven. Did you notice those two things going together? Familiarity, godly fear. Our Father, who art in heaven, seated upon the throne, reigning from heaven. You're in heaven, we're here. You see, along with the familiarity, godly fear, reverence, or seeing those two things going side by side in the same heart of the believer and expressed at the same time. Here's another example. In Hebrews, we're told to draw near to the throne of grace. There again, you notice these two things standing side by side. He emphasizes the grace, but how does the grace come to us? Or how do we come to it? Well, it's a throne. Draw near unto him with godly fear, we're told. Well, another subsidiary point is this familiarity and formality. That's another question we're interested to know about, isn't it? Because so often the church has gone uh, in one or two extremes in either direction. Either it's too familiar or it's too formal, isn't it? I'm describing the difference between the high church and the low church. Well, again, I would draw another contrast. Formality is the opposite of familiarity. The man who's overly formal can't be familiar. Well, the man who's overly familiar can't be formal. Well, another word uh, uh, for familiarity is spontaneity or freedom. And this is why I'm saying there is often a suddenness that accompanies this kind of prayer because it's spontaneous. It's free. It's familiar. This contrast is known not only in prayer. I'll give you an example. There is the kind of prayer which is extemporaneous. There's also the kind of prayer which is written. And in general, I'm not in favor of written prayers. Why? Well, because of this point. I think that a written prayer is overly formal. It it fails to accomplish what Paul is expressing here. And that is the cry of the child unto his father. It can also be expressed in worship and in liturgies. 
Let me read to you what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about that. He says, the apostle tells us in these terms exactly how a child speaks to God. He doesn't do so in a formal manner, nor in a mechanical or cold manner. This, as far as I'm concerned, is the determining factor as regards liturgical services. And he's talking about high church Anglicanism. There is nothing here about a beautiful, dignified service. Rather, we're looking at a child. There's no dignity in a child, still less pomposity. And there's nothing dignified about the term Abba. As I've been showing, it is familiar rather than dignified. And he goes on. It's very interesting to notice that men, that as men and women know less and less about living spiritual experience, the more formal does their worship become. This has been most striking during the present century. Increasingly, nonconformists, that's Protestants, have been introducing a liturgical element into their worship. This is because of a low level of spirituality. Conversely, when people come, in, come to a living experience of God, they rely less and less upon forms. Well, let me try to put that point in my own way. In terms of a contrast that I like to make, and I've already made it, the contrast between the high church and the low church. The service which is so full of liturgy, in contrast to the service which has nothing whatsoever of the kind. Looking at the spirit of adoption, I would ask the question, where is the spirit of adoption in the high church? Where is the sense of familiarity with God? You'll look for it and you won't find it. Reverence only. But then I would ask of the low church, let's say uh, the rock concert kind of service. Where's the spirit of reverence and godly fear in the low church? Well, again, You'll look for it, but you won't find it. Familiarity only and an uncomfortable familiarity. In neither case will you find what you seek. But here, once more, I would say, is the genius and the beauty of Presbyterian worship. Uh, for along with Terry Johnson, I would argue that Presbyterian worship is neither high church nor low church. And thus it makes room for both. There is a happy blending, as there ought to be, in all expressions of prayer and worship, of familiarity and fear. Familiarity and godly fear, I'm saying, but never formality. But let me ask as a final question, who are the recipients of the cry? When and how are they apt to receive it? And my first answer is that it's open to all who are sons. For that is the logic of the passage. All who are led as sons and thus all who are sons might be led by the spirit to cry to God as sons. To address God as our father with intensity of feeling, with a heightened sense of our love to him as his beloved children. Yes, the spirit was given for this reason. So I draw no distinctions. Any believer might be led by the spirit thus to cry unto God in prayer. Abba, father. Nonetheless, I acknowledge once more that this experience, this moving experience, is almost never constant. Perhaps you will dispute that, but that is my assertion. It is almost never constant. At times, feelings of sonship are interrupted or taken away. There may be in the life of the believer seasons of darkness. We may be subject to satanic assault or fierce trials. Inevitably, I'm saying that all sons who are truly sons will nevertheless face times in which familiar feelings are lost. 
times in which we find it difficulty to express uh, our love to God, our confidence in our sonship and prayer and so on. But in response to that, and as I close, I would note certain observations or certain directions concerning how it may come for those who have not known it or come again for those who have but have lost it. Childlike confidence in prayer. Here's the first. There's two. All who are living as sons may know it, but only they. You notice I didn't say all who are sons. No, I said all who are living as sons. Those who are sons and living as sons. If we would know that we are sons, we must live and act as sons. Yes, and I say today, and hopefully to you, that though you may have lost these feelings and this confidence, this childlike confidence in prayer, though you may tarry a while without a sense of your sonship for various reasons, you are sure to find it. All who live as sons are sure to find it. Surprising joy will soon find them. But on the other hand, those who labor in unbelief and sin, though they be sons, will always lack this confidence and familiar feeling with God in prayer. Their prayers will ever be hindered by their sins. Though they are sons, they're not living like it. And are we surprised to find that they lack this confidence, that they lack indeed this experience in prayer? Let me read another Edwards quote. Uh, If I can find it, there it is. I bookmarked it. He said, it is not God's design that men men should obtain assurance in any other way than by mortifying corruption and increasing in grace and obtaining the lively exercises of it. Well, it's just the same point. And indeed, he uses the same language, mortifying sin. That's verse 13. Well, the one who's mortifying sin, that's the one who's led by the spirit. That's the one who's not only a son, but who's acting like it. But as a second point, I would notice as to its timing, that it often breaks in at certain key moments. And I'll say the same thing about verse 16, the witness of the spirit. For instance, when one is converted, he may live with this confidence for some time, taken up and almost lost, it would seem, in this kind of prayer. That was my own experience. Though it may be lost and often is and yet found again. And so it will come in many cases after conversion, often after a period of great struggle and trial. Light shines in and dispels the, com- uh, the, the, the darkness. We regain our confidence as sun. We regain, regain our footing, our sense of things. Uh, a spiritual release is felt and known by the believer. How? By the spirit coming to him in his own sovereignty. Suddenly he finds himself once more going to God in all the confidence of sons, full of feeling in his heart, confident, assured once more of his sonship. And so my second direction as I close, if if I may call it that, my first direction is live as sons. My second direction is wait, wait. And if you are observing the first direction, you may wait with confidence, assured that you will find what you seek. You will again be able to say with Spurgeon, I can testify to this. I've spoken to him in that particular manner. We have had access to him in such a way that we cannot have been deceived about it. The thing really happened in this tremendous fashion. We were enabled by the spirit to cry out to God, Abba, Father. Amen. And let us go now to the table.
Well, we read about what Jesus said uh, at the end of, well, the middle of chapter 14. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Let's read just a little before that. Indeed, just a few verses before where he institutes the Lord's Supper. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, one of the things that we like to stress about the sacraments, and this is not distinct in any way to Reformed churches, but this is the common sacramental theology, of the church, and that is that they are signs and seals. And I would, I would just keep stressing to you that as the Lord's Supper signifies what Christ is expressing to believers, namely that in going to the cross, he's going to lay down his life, he's going to shed his blood, his body's going to be broken for them, and thereby the new covenant will be established, ratified, and sealed by his blood. That, as it signifies those things, so it seals them. In other words, a seal is something uh, like a promise. It's something that carries with it assurance. Uh, I've given the example before of a wedding ring. This wedding ring signifies marriage, but it isn't marriage, is it? My marriage is something uh, different from the ring. Nevertheless, the ring signifies the marriage. I could say, in this ring, uh, I have a picture of marriage. But even beyond that, when I place that ring on my finger, I'm... I'm doing something in addition to signifying marriage. I'm sealing it. I'm saying, I pledge myself to you. I forsake all others for you. That's what a seal is. It's something that carries with it certainty. It's a promise. And what we need to recognize is that God is the one who is sealing the promises to us. It's not we to him. Don't be mistaken about that. He's saying, I pledge to you my love as the everlasting possession of the church. Do you understand why that is a matter of celebration? Do you understand why, if the Lord's Supper is seen in that way, that it is something that ought to be celebrated by believers uh, on a weekly basis? This is not a liturgical form. We're not bringing in uh, the high church into the, into the church, not, not in the least in, in connection with the sermon I just preached. But we are here made to act and to feel the sons. And we have those very things assured to us. Now, the only question then to ask is, to whom is the promise given? That will answer the question, who ought to partake of the supper? And the answer is, to the elect. And who are the elect? Well, the elect are those who confess their faith in Jesus Christ. That's why we're told to discern the body and to discern the blood at the table in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. What are we discerning? Well, we are discerning him. We're discerning him in in his sacrifice for us. We're exercising faith. And when you have that kind of faith, well, then you can be sure that the promise is for you and that you ought to partake and you ought to look for for God to further seal his promises to you. Uh, With those words of uh, institution and invitation, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We acknowledge that you are the author of every grace in the believer. You are the one who enables us Uh, to express a childlike confidence in prayer. You are the one who enables us to exercise faith in Jesus Christ, even at the table. Not as we find him bodily here, surely not. But as we find his body in heaven, and we are able even now through this means to discern that truth. 
that his body was was broken. It was it was bled out on the cross. It's 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 horrible to utter these words. And yet that's what we believe. That's what happened. And that very body was raised up on the third day and now reigns in heaven. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge you. We discern you by faith. And we look for you to be spiritually present now in the supper and to bless the faith of your people. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen.